this week there was, um, yeah, as every week there's a lot of things that happen in the news. And, and this week in the news, one of the uh, more uh, newsworthy events was that a uh, certain <coughs> professional football player for the National Football League uh, Patriots was caught um, and found to be guilty of cheating again. And so uh, he was handed down a four-game suspension. And as the news got out, there were people crying on both sides. There were some people who were saying, ah, justice has been served. Off with his head. He cheated once. He cheated twice. Now he needs to suffer the consequences of it. This is a competitive imbalance, an advantage that he has gained. And for his team, off with his head. Justice must be served. There's people on that side. And then there's others who are saying, well, give him a break. I mean, after all, he's so good looking. And he wears Uggs. He only makes $7 million a year. And in countries like Brazil, he's only known by his wife and no one knows who he is. So just cut him some slack, have mercy. In the tension between justice and mercy, if you were the judge handing down the decision, which would you choose, justice or mercy? And if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, would that make a difference in the decision, in the ruling that you hand down to this football player. That's never going to happen to us. So let me ask you, as a Christian in the court of public opinion, everyone has, a, everyone has an opinion. Does it make a difference as a Christian how we respond to the news of his indiscretions? Right? Should it cause us to call out for justice or should it cause us to call out for mercy? Does it matter as a Christian? How should we respond to this? Well, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Uh, you're at school, okay? You're at school, and your friend or somebody that you know has cheated on a test. Not the first time, not the second time. Maybe it's the third or fourth time. And you know that if they get caught one more time, that they're going to get kicked out of the school. At the same time, there are other people who are being affected by the decision that your friend has made. So do you turn them in or do you let it slide? In the tension between justice and mercy, what are you supposed to do? Because as a Christian, it should make a difference. You're a boss and you've got people under your charge, right? You've got employees who work for you. And there's someone who's shown up late every week, every week for the past, I don't know, five, six weeks. You love them. You care for them. But at the same time, it's hindering your business. Do you fire them or do you keep them? Do you fire them at their expense or do you keep them at your expense? What do you do? You're leading a ministry team. You're leading a missions team. You're leading some kind of a gathering at church. You're working with leaders. And there are certain standards that have been expected of them. But they fail to meet those standards. They've been absent without telling you or with telling you whatever it is. But they use the same excuse each week. There's traffic every week that they try and come. At what point do you say, okay, enough is enough. You're no longer able to be part of our team. At what point do you do that? In the tension between justice and mercy, as a child of God, as a Christian, when do you go justice and when do you go with mercy? These are very real questions. I hope, I hope these are very real questions that we wrestle through. You're a parent. 
and your daughter has been unruly. They have defied you willingly and constantly and consistently. You're out of patience. You don't know what to do. You don't want to spank them, but at what point do you say, okay, I cannot spare the rod any longer. I need to, I need to bring out the stick, and I need to give them a spank. Right? Can you do that or can you not? In that tension between laying down the law and exercising mercy, where do we go? And as a child of God, does it make a difference? Today I want to talk about mercy as we look into the Beatitudes. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read, uh, today we'll, let, let's go verses 1 through 10. Uh, as we read <clears throat> from the Beatitudes, this is Jesus again teaching Christians, right? He's not teaching everybody out there in the world. He's teaching specifically Christians. And as others who are not believers overhear this, he's inviting them into the kind of life that he has promised to those who follow him. Okay? So we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to talk about uh, verse 7, this fifth uh, beatitude. Beatitude means the blessings, right? The blessed statement. This is God's word, Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, okay, the Christ followers, came to him, and Jesus, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. So last week, we finished the first half of the Beatitudes, and we saw something that we just read, that in the first three Beatitudes, they are Beatitudes of emptiness. You realize that you're poor in spirit. You mourn over your lack of Christ-likeness and your lack of holiness, and then you become meek as a result. These are all Beatitudes of emptying. And then with the fourth Beatitude, it says, blessed are you when you hunger and you thirst. When you know that you're empty, you will begin to hunger for that which is lacking in your life. So the first three say you're going to be emptied out of all the things that the world says you need to have and you come empty before God. And then the fourth one says, if you hunger and thirst for him, then he will fill you. Starting today with the fifth beatitude in verse seven, he says, this is what it's going to look like as you hunger and thirst. This is what it's going to look like that you are filled with him and his life in you. And the first thing that it says is blessed, verse 7, are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And one of the marks of being a follower of Christ, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, is that you will become a merciful person. Would your friends, your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, would they consider you to be a merciful person. Are you merciful? Uh, maybe some of you are saying, nah, I don't think I am. If you're not, then again, maybe it's because you're not a child of God. Right? You think that you're a follower of Christ, but if there's no fruit, then it's probably because you've got the wrong root. Because the root always determines the fruit, right? 
If there's no root of God in you, then there will be no fruit of godliness in you, coming from you. And maybe others of you are saying, well, I'm not sure. I don't know what mercy means. Well, the good thing is that the first thought I'm going to tell you is what mercy is. Merciful people. Mercy means that we see a need. We feel a need. And then we move to meet that need. Do you see the needs around you? And then do you feel those needs? And then do you move to meet those needs? And if you do, then it probably means that at some level you're merciful. Mentioned maybe about five, six, seven weeks ago in our previous series, about the time I was flying back uh, to Orlando from Atlanta. Do you remember this? And there was a guy. We were all late for our flight. We were all going to miss our flight. And there was a man who was later than I. I was standing in the middle of the security line, right, going through security. And there was a guy who just got to the end of the line. And he was so late that at the risk of embarrassing himself, Right At the certainty, what a risk, it was certainty of embarrassing himself. He cried out in the middle of that whole place. He said, someone, can you have mercy on me? Can you let me cut in front of you? There was a guy like that. I, I, I talked about him. And, and what, what was he saying? He's saying, at the end of this line, I'm never going to make my flight. I need to cut in front of somebody. Would somebody show mercy to me? What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He said, can you see my need? Can you see my predicament? Can you see that there's no way I'm going to make my flight. That's what he's asking us to do. Can you see the need? I, I saw the need. But the second thing he's saying is, can you feel my need? Not just can you see it, but do you feel me? Do you feel how I've got a family to go back to? If I don't make my flight, I'm, I'm not going to see them. They're going to go a day without daddy again. Do you feel me? Do you feel how uncomfortable I am sweating in this suit that I'm wearing. And do you see how uncomfortable, you feel how uncomfortable I am embarrassing myself in front of hundreds of people and no one is responding to me. Do you feel me? If you can't feel any of those other things, can you feel what I feel right now? Can you feel my need? And I think I felt his need, but I didn't feel it in the way that genuine mercy would. Because when the Hebrew writers talk about mercy, the major word they use to talk about mercy is this Hebrew word that goes oraham. <laughs> if you want to impress your Jewish, there's a Jewish girl at your school that you like or Jewish boy that you like and you want to impress them, say, hey, I speak Hebrew, oraham. Can you say that? You say that to them. And then they'll, oh, mercy, what a beautiful word. Right? Can you have oraham on me? What is mercy? That at the deep level, what it's saying. It's the feeling that accompanies the seeing of a need. And it's not just a feeling, but it's a feeling that's so deep in your gut that you cannot help but do something to meet that need. Do you feel that? Like, do you feel that when you see a need? I don't know if you, you see that. Maybe you see like a, 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 a stray dog or not a cat. No one really feels that for a cat, but you see a stray cat on the side of the road and, and you see that need and you feel something right? so much to the degree that if, if I don't do something, then that animal is going to not going to make it. You feel that need in such a way that it causes you to say, I need to do something. <clears throat> I need to do something to meet the need that's there. I saw the dude's need. I felt his need, but it, I didn't feel it enough. To move me to action. Because I had the same, I felt like I had the same need. And I wasn't merciful to him. I made my flight. I don't know if he ever made it or not. But 
Uh, I was a bad example in that situation. Right? I should have shown mercy to the man who cried out for mercy. But when he asks for mercy, that's what he's saying. To see a need, to feel the need, and then to take steps to meet that need in light of that rubric and that definition. Would you say that you're a merciful person? When's the last time you saw a need? When's the last time you saw a need? Uh, one of the great definitions of mercy, the great examples of mercy in Scripture. It comes in Luke chapter 10 where, where Jesus is giving the great commandment. You know what the great commandment is, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And so someone says to him, okay, I don't know if he's being a smart aleck or if he's just trying to justify himself, but he says, who's my neighbor? Right? Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus goes on to tell the story, <clears throat> a parable that we now know as the Good Samaritan. It's about this Jewish guy walking that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, windy, curvy, dangerous road, and this Jewish man gets jumped by bandits. He gets robbed, and he gets beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. And these two priest-like characters walk by. They see the need, whether they felt the need or not. They crossed over the other side of the road, ignored him, and they kept on going on their way. There's a third guy introduced into the story who's a Samaritan. And the Jews and the Samaritans, they hate each other. Right? This is extreme case of racism. An extreme case. It's so bad that the Jewish people would not even mention the name of a Samaritan. So at the end of the story, when Jesus says, who's the real hero? Instead of saying it's the Samaritan, they say the one who showed mercy. This is how bad the racial tension was. It's the kind of tension where this is like, I mean, they can't even say, it's just they had cooties on steroids. That's what they thought to the degree that even to mention their name would be to defile them. And so what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan is set up and immediately the hearers think, oh, there's no way he's going to be the champion of the story. But it says that the Samaritan saw the man if you read it in Luke 10, you see it's he saw the man says he had compassion on him. He not only saw, but he felt. And what did it move him to do? He felt in a Raham sort of a way that he took him and he bandaged up his wounds. He put him on his own horse. He took him to a hotel, effectively gave the credit card to the hotel owner, to the front desk and said, whatever charge he needs to do, room service, uh, uh, ambulance, whatever he needs, just charge it to my card. I'll come back and I'll pick up the tab later. I'll get my card later. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus says, the question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus flips that question around to them. He says, that's not the question. The question is, Two people walked by, they didn't do anything. One person walked by and he did something, completely undeserving person. The Jew wouldn't have done it for the Samaritan. The question he asked, would you have done the same? The real question Jesus wants them to see, what would you have done? Because Jesus removes it from the realm of mere sight and mere feeling and he says to them at the end, who was the neighbor? They said the one who showed mercy. His response to them was go and do likewise. And you got to do it, right? You think you know it. 
you don't know it unless you show it, right? You don't know mercy until you show it with your life. Uh, You can't talk about mercy if you don't do it. So again, let me ask, would people say that you're a merciful person? You see the needs around you. And then do you feel it to the point where it moves you to action? Or does it move you to the point of being uncomfortable so that you can turn around and go the other way like the priest and the Levite did? Do you feel, do you see, do you see, do you feel, do you move to action? Because this is what mercy does. He says, blessed are the merciful. Um, I don't know if we did, do we, okay. Um, so yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I was coming back home from, uh, from my flight, and, and uh, I saw a picture that my friend had, had posted. Um, this is a picture that I saw. Um, this picture is of two girls, uh, sisters. Um, you could tell how old they are. You could guess how old they are but he was working with a group called Agape International. And he said these two young girls were rescued out of um, the brothel. Basically, these girls had been sold by their parents for money, uh, sold for sex, so that they could be sold to men who would be willing to pay for them to do sexual favors for them. And he ended that description of this picture saying, Christian, what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? I saw that. I mean, that's my that that's my daughter's age. Right? That's some of your daughter's age. Now, what are we going to do about it? It's my same friend Kevin. He's speaking at Synod Retreat. One of the speakers. He said, when it comes fifty years later, and they say all the sex trafficking, human trafficking, slavery was happening in our day, the year twenty fifteen. And when we tell our grandchildren about that story and they ask us, Grandpa, Grandma, what did you do about it? What are we going to say? And I hope we have something to say. More than I saw a picture at church. And then I went on my life. You see it. You feel it. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What am I going to do? What are you going to do about it? This is what mercy does. It sees. It feels feel so deeply that it moves us to action. Second thing that mercy, about mercy, that being merciful is about a life of mercy, not just acts of mercy. It's about a life of mercy, not just acts of mercy. Anybody can do a merciful thing. Anybody can see something, someone on the side of the road and do something merciful. But do we have a lifestyle of mercy where we're seeing, constantly seeing, constantly feeling, constantly wanting to do something? If it's not ourselves, but being an activist, being a voice, helping other people so that they could do something about the needs around us. It's not just about acts, and it has nothing to do with our personality. When I was little, uh, I used to... And back in the day before the internet and before uh, we, all had, uh, we all had smartphones and stuff like that, uh, we used to play outside. Uh, we used to play outside. Can you imagine that? Outside was not just a necessary evil to get from the car to the next air-conditioned place. Like, we hung out outside. <laughs> Crazy. We used to hang out outside, and being a little boy, sometimes we got, a lot of times we got bored. Can you believe that? We got bored when we were little. And we didn't have all these things that were, when I'm bo- Sometimes it's good to be bored. Did you know that? It's good to be bored. It's good to be bored, young people, right? You don't always need to be doing something, and I'm always bored. Yeah, then 
create your own fun. This is how we create a fun when we're little. It's not a, a good thing, but we're like real little, like five, six, seven, eight years old. We used to play with insects and we used to do like science experiments on them. <laughs> so there, after it would rain, these things called slugs would come out. Do we have slugs down here? Slugs are like big, fat, nasty, like, yeah, like big old, like oversized. They ate too much worms. And so people told us if you take salt and you pour them on slugs, <laughs> they'll begin to dissolve. And so we thought this is awesome. And so my brother and I and, and uh, John and, and Nick for, uh, next door to us, we would get some salt and we said, okay, ready? And then we would like, I mean, this is bad. We taunt, taunt these slugs and say, listen, all you have done, you slimy little slug, is cause disgust to come to our lives. What is your defense? Right? What is your defense? But I can't hear you. I can't hear you. They punish him. So the moment of execution would come. And right before we pour, we would say, cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. I can't hear you. And then none of the other guys heard it, so we would pour the salt on the slug and psh, it dissolve. It would be awesome. We'd leave this stain on the white sidewalk. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. And there, there would be a bunch of ants, ants, and we'd get our magnifying glass. And my brother said, if you, if you position the magnifying glass where the sun is, you can burn these ants and they'll die. <laughs> it's awesome. He's like, ants. So we like corralled them all, a bunch of ants, and then he's showing him. I said, wait, we got to, we got to, you know, same thing with the slug. Let him plead for mercy. What is your defense? Plead for mercy. We shine it on them. And I'll show you that. It was awesome. Great stuff. So that's the way I was as a little five, six, seven-year-old boy. Now I'm like in my, I'm, you know, older, and a bug flew into our house like two weeks ago, two weeks ago, and I caught that joker. And I said, Manny, come here. I said, watch. I'm going f- to put him in the toilet, and he's going to try and swim around. And then you push the button and watch him go down. She said, no. Don't do that. How can you kill it? Don't do that. My da- I don't know if she's joking, but she said, Daddy, it has a family. It has children. It has to go back to it. Don't kill it. I don't know if she's, I think she's, I don't know if she's saying that just to be cute. But she was really like pleading, don't, don't kill it. I really, I mean, I wanted to see her, see it go down the toilet. But I said, are you sure? Just let it go. And she's like, let it go. <laughs> so <laughs> I took it and I said, you're lucky that Manny pled mercy on your behalf. You will live. And I let it go. And it went off. And I'll probably come back into our house. And when she's not looking, I'll throw it in the toilet. But <laughs> there's a... Big difference between how boys and girls look at mercy sometimes. I think it is. I mean, in a moment, I was, in, in that act, I wasn't merciful. In that act, she was. But again, when Jesus is talking about being merciful, he's not talking about singular acts of mercy, nor is he talking about it being about our personality. Because if he's simply talking about a personality of being merciful, then I think most stereotypically, probably ladies would be nicer and more merciful and they'd have a head start on us men, right? No, not men. And she's like, no, not me. So maybe not her. But what Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with our personality or your disposition, that you're more quiet and, and kind and, and therefore you're, you're, you're better on your road to being merciful. I'm not saying that. Saying all of these things represent the fruit of an inner transformation that has taken place in such a way that even the meanest of little boys 
can become merciful, and sometimes the sweetest little girls may not be the most merciful. He's talking about a transformation that begins to take place in us because you can't, these eight beatitudes, you can't take them and, and, and out of context and isolation say, you know what, Lord, just make me more merciful. That's not how the beatitudes work. He's saying there's a progression that happens. It's a natural outflow of understanding what it means to be poor in spirit. And what it means to mourn over your sin. And what it means to become meek. And to know that I, it's not my will, but yours be done. And when we realize that, we begin to thirst and the hunger for righteousness. And as we do that, he's saying mercy will be one of the first things that begins to come into our lives. Have you experienced that before? Like, do you know that transformation that he's talking about. It's not just saying let's pick and choose these things and botanically stick them onto us so that I do acts of mercy. He's not talking about, I'm sorry, he's not talking about just stick it on the outside of us and we change from the outside in. He's saying from the inside out, the transformation is going to happen if you surrender your heart and your life to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what begins to happen. It is like a plant that grows organically. It's an organic transformation, not a mechanical outward in transformation that happens. That's why he's saying anyone can do acts, singular acts of mercy. He's saying, I'm calling you to a lifestyle of mercy. You see, when Jesus tells a story of the good Samaritan, it is a story. It didn't actually happen. It's a parable. And he makes clear that it's a parable. One of the things that we understand is that these guys just happened to pass along this jumped Jewish man. They didn't set out one day and say, hey, the good Samaritan did this. Oh, my gosh, it's Thursday. You know what Thursday is? It's Mercy Thursday. Let me get my mercy kit out and go look for somebody who happened to be jumped on this dangerous road. He didn't say that. Or, oh, it's Monday. Time to do my Mercy Monday duties. Let's go get our bandage, get our horse. And go look for a dude that's nearly dead. He didn't. He just on the journey of life. Because his life was a life of mercy. He came upon a person. And because he had mercy as his root. He had mercy as the fruit. Let me ask again, are you a merciful kind of a person? Because the gift and the reward to the merciful, he says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. What does that mean? The last thing that I want to point out is that being merciful, being merciful, a lifestyle of mercy is a reflection of God's mercy, not a reward for it. It's not We're not earning God's mercy. Right? It's the reward of having experienced it. I don't know what the, exactly it says in your bulletin. But we're not earning mercy by showing mercy. In fact, in showing mercy, we're actually reflecting mercy that we've already received. So 
Blessed are the, are the merciful, for they will be showed mercy. Jesus is saying, listen, if you are merciful in your life, when you get to the end of your days and you stand before God, if your life has been one of mercy, then God also will show mercy to you. So what does this look like? What does this mean? Does it mean, and this is what a lot of us may read, does it mean that if we show mercy, right? We stand before God and he says, okay, let me see what's your name, Justin. Okay, Justin, you did, looks like you did about 118 merciful acts. Okay, that's good enough. Here's your mercy. You get it. Go ahead on your way. Is it an earning of God's mercy that Jesus is talking about? I say no, and I think all of Scripture and all of the commentators say no, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying it's true that if you have lived a merciful life, then at the end of the day you will receive mercy, but your mercy that you do in this lifetime as you show it to others is not an earning of future mercy. It is a reflection of past mercy that has already been received Because the root again has been transformed, you will bear the fruit of mercy. And if you bear the fruit of mercy as a sign that you've been changed, then at the end of it all, you'll receive the full recompense of God's mercy in your life and you will enter into your eternal rest. Our mercy that we show to others is not the cause for us receiving mercy, nor is it the condition of us receiving mercy. It is the result of us having received mercy. That's what he's talking about here. Because God calls us to live a life of mercy because everything about the life of a child of God should be reflective of the character and the characteristics of the God whom we serve. Everything about our lives should be a picture of the character of God so that when people look at your life, People look at your life. They should be able to see, wow, that person, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. The tree has not fallen very, I'm sorry, the fruit has not fallen very far from the tree. And in seeing the son, in seeing the daughter, I see the father. Your life should be, I think Alexander McLaren said, your life should be a copy of God for the world to see. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Why does he say of the three things that he requires of you, that one of them is to show mercy? Because he's saying, if you've received mercy, then you will show mercy. Psalm 23, at the end of the most famous psalm in all of the Psalter, Surely goodness and what mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why is God telling us that we need to be merciful? Because God is merciful. And for all your days, not only will Jesus, I am yours all my days, but mercy will be yours from him for all of your days. Ephesians chapter four says God who is rich in mercy. God is not poor in mercy. He is rich in mercy. That means he's got a lot of it and he's got a whole lot more where it comes from. Seas of crimson are seas of mercy. Endless, endless seas. 
Titus 3.5, he saved you not because of righteous things that you did, but because of his mercy. Your salvation is because of the mercy of God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive what? Grace and mercy to help us in our times of need. The reason why you and I are called to be merciful is because God is merciful. And the world is wanting to see the mercy of God lived out through our lives. And so my friend Kevin says, Christian, what will you do when you see the need? Will you reflect the mercy of the God who says he's shown you what's good? And what does he require of you? To love justice. That means to take that which is unjust and make it right. That which is crooked and to make it straight. To love mercy. To love mercy. To not just do it, not just to accept it, but to embrace it, to love it. To love mercy. So what do we do? What do we do in the situation where Tom Brady has been suspended for four games? What do we do? What would you do? What are we supposed to do if we're called to be merciful? Because not only are we called to reflect the mercy of God, but we're called to reflect the whole character of God. Can I tell you something? Here's the reason why Christians should be the most merciful people in the world if you really get it. I'll tell you, and this is, this is a, a, one of the key, this is like worth $1,000 right here. You will treat people, this is a diagnostic test for the ages, you will treat people the way that you will feel God has treated you. Let me say that again. You will treat people the way that you feel that God has treated you. If you know God's mercy, then you will treat other people with mercy. If you feel like God has been impatient with you, you know how you'll relate to other people? You'll be impatient with them. If you feel like God has given you the short end of the stick, then whenever time comes for you to give out gifts or whatever it is, you'll give people the short end of the stick. If you feel like God is always punishing you, can I tell you what? You're always going to be punishing your children, your friends. If you always feel guilty before God, then you're always going to be giving people guilt trips. Think deeply on this, y'all. How you think you've been treated by God is going to be how you and I treat other people. Because we are always reflectors of what we feel we have received from God. Feel like God has been generous with you, then you'll be generous with other people. And so, not only are we to model the mercy of God, but we're to model the justice of God too. There's got to be justice. And there's no easy way to know when do I show justice and when do I show mercy. There have to be times where you give out punishment to the cheater. There have to be times when you call out the person who has done wrong. There has to be times when you need to let go of your worker. There has to be times when you, if you spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. But the way that we do these things has to be different. You fire your worker, then maybe you do it with tears. You spank your kid, 
better not do it in anger. You better do it with a weeping, broken heart. You have to discipline somebody in your life. And you do that, but you do everything you can so it's not punitive, it's not punishment, it's to restore them and to build them and to encourage them. You fire a worker, maybe that means you help them get another job or get them in a place where they can get some skills to help them to succeed in life. But the mercy must always come through. There were times when Jesus had to get angry. But nobody said of Jesus, he's an angry man. There were times when Jesus showed mercy. And the posture that people had when they saw Jesus, they said, well, he is a man who is merciful. Jesus calls us to be people who are merciful. And it's from the fountainhead of receiving the mercy of God that we can understand what it means to really be merciful from the inside out. You can't just be merciful. You can do a merciful act, but you will not experience the inner transformation that makes you merciful until you know the mercy of God. See, in every situation, a man who's about to miss his flight, a slug or a bug who's about to get killed, in every situation, mercy is not being earned in that situation. Right? That man's not crying out for justice. He's crying out for mercy. The bug's not crying out for justice. He's crying out for mercy. Why? Because mercy only comes when someone in a position of power condescends to one who others don't believe is worthy. It's not a blind eye to the wrong that has been done. But in seeing it and embracing it, in the midst of that, there's a mercy. To the person who has done wrong to you that affects other people, you never just turn a blind eye and say, go ahead. Because to do that would be to Throw justice out. The clearest understanding, and that would not reflect the heart of God, the heart of mercy. Why? Because God never overlooked our sin. He never overlooked your sin or mine. In fact, he saw them so fully. He felt it so fully that he needed to punish it to the uttermost. And what was what was, what did it take for God to meet that need in us? None other than to crucify his one and only son. That's mercy. It didn't turn a blind eye to our sin. It didn't turn a blind eye to our wrong. In fact, it fully embraced it. It saw it in all of its ugly fullness in order that genuine love and mercy could be exacted at the cross. We cannot understand how deep the mercy is unless we understand how deep the sin is. And that's what he's shown to us. We have to understand. We have to understand the depth of our sin against God. That he had to die. The only way that we'd be forgiven is that he had to die. The perfect, holy son of God. But then to understand the love of God. The love of Jesus. That he was glad to die. In order that we would know that it's not just cosmic level child abuse. But it's mercy 
at its utmost. When we receive that mercy fully, freely, and it changes our hearts, permeates our being, then we can become people of mercy. Then, as mercy stains the very fiber of who we are, right? not just sits upon, but stains it, transforming. It's like, it's like iced tea. right? If our lives are, oil, are water, it's not just oil coming on and a drop of change here and there, but the Kool-Aid mix, the Gatorade mix, the iced tea mix, it begins to work itself all the way through until the compl- the, the, there's a completely different person. Right? This is the mercy of God to permeate our being. We're changed, we're transformed, and this, therein lies the blessing. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. Let's pray. As we uh, take a moment to reflect, you're a merciful person. Would people see the mercy of God in you? The more we grow in Christ, the more we will reflect the multifaceted beauty of God's character. Some of us only reflect his mercy, but not his justice. Some only his love, but not his patience. Some only his justice, but not his grace. The more we grow, in understanding the gospel of Christ, we will grow to reflect the character and the heart and the nature of God that has been shown to us. If you know God's mercy in your life, this is the fountainhead. Do you know the mercy of God? Have you surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you saved by grace and grace alone? It's the only way that we can stand before God and receive mercy from Him. We don't earn it. In fact, that to earn mercy negates the very definition of the word. The question that you and I need to ask is, do you know the mercy of God in your life? If you do, it changes everything. And if you don't, then life is going to be so hard. His commands will be burdensome, not a joy. You'll be pulling teeth, trying to squeeze out of your body something that's not there. Your call would be to bow before Jesus and say, I need you in my life. I need to be changed by the grace of God. I'm not a Christian because I come to church. I'm a Christian because I'm saved by grace and I've surrendered my life to For others of us, you lived a lifestyle of mercy. It exuded out of you. But now, for some reason, you felt like you strayed from the gospel. You felt like you needed to earn it. You feel like you need to earn it, then you're not going to be able to exercise mercy to others. Because you feel like it's not mercy anymore. You feel like it's a wage. Let's come before the Lord God and let's surrender and say, God, I need to understand the gospel again. I need to drink deeply from that fountain, from that well of mercy so that I can extend mercy to others. Let's pray together for a couple moments, being honest before the Lord God. Maybe some of us, we need to open up our hearts and ask Jesus to come in.
be our Savior, to be our Lord, and to change us. That we would die to ourselves and come alive in Him. Maybe others, we just need to clear away the channels that keep us from receiving the love of God. Let's pray together for a few moments, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll continue to respond. in heaven we thank you that we have received from you that which we could never earn we could never buy we could never be worthy of thank you that in loving us and extending mercy into our lives we've been changed so father we pray that in changing us because of mercy because of grace that you would help us to go forth as changed people, people of mercy, people who love, people who see differently, and people who be reflectors of the mercy that we've received from heaven above. As we respond to you with songs, make them our prayer. Help us not to give you an offering that costs us nothing. Help us to give costly sacrifice, costly offering. Help us to give sacrificially so that more people could come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We thank you. We need you. We look to you. In Jesus' name we pray.